Guys, this is episode one of Grim, which stands for Grave Retellings of Insidious Murders and Mysteries. Today, we're talking about the Cheshire home invasions involving the Pettit family. I'm Marina. I have my two best friends with me, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. Guys, this is it. We're doing it. That that song was a jam, though. Can we just talk about it's that for so a second? Good. It was a jam. It's so good. Uh, let's start out and say hello to our one listener. Hi, Dad. Hi, Mom. <laughs> oh, oh, no. We, we have three, we've got three downloads right out the bat. I got, you know, yeah. So today, guys, we are talking about the Cheshire murders. Uh, this is Cheshire, Connecticut. Um, did we want to, did we want to, like, introduce ourselves a little bit? Or did we want to just jump I'm into Laura. it? I'm Colby. Okay. Oh, we're just all right. That's we're just, it. That's it. Well, you'll, you'll, to get, to, you'll get to know episode. us. Yeah, yeah, you'll get to know us. All right, fine. All right. So I'll just jump. She's right. just doing anything to not go into no, her no, presentation. No, I, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'll just jump right into it. Um, so I'm just going to give like a little quick overview just so that you guys have an understanding of what's going on. So this was a home invasion gone terribly wrong, as one of the perpetrators described it, or terribly right. Did from their perspective? Oh, I was like, that is dark that is, is, some is this not called grim? grim it is that is that is grim i will get into some of their motives and mm-hmm. all the bullshit lies mm-hmm. that they that they mm-hmm. went through but so this happened in cheshire connecticut which um is the bedding plant capital of connecticut true story um, it's one town over from where we all went to college it sure is and um most of us lived there for yeah, quite for some, some time. period of mm-hmm. time but it is a super quiet town. It is described as a bedroom community, which I did not know what that was, but it is a residential area where a large number of people live but do not work. Mm-hmm. So I assume mm-hmm. most of them work in like New Haven, Hartford, mm-hmm. maybe even New York City. Yep, I can um, see that. It's a very quiet, affluent community. Uh, these statistics are not current for when the incident occurred, but between 2016 and 2020, the median household income was 122,477. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty high. I mean, pretty people, good. that's pretty good. People are well off. Mm-hmm. Um, so this occurred on July 23rd, 2007. And the victims were, uh, Dr. William Bill Pettit, who was 50 years old. He was the only survivor, uh, Jennifer Hawk Pettit, who was the mother. She was 48 years old. And their two daughters, Haley, who was 17 and Michaela, who was 11. Mm-hmm. And many people uh, describe this as Cheshire's 9-11 just because it was Mm. so horrific that overnight people started installing alarm systems, panic buttons, panic rooms. Mm. Like it shook. It shook the nation. I mean, this was nationwide news. I remember being at a mock police academy when I saw this on TV and it was it was like a really, really big deal. Uh, especially in Connecticut. Right before we moved to Connecticut One for month, school, right? Yep, about a month yeah. before we moved to Connecticut. And I remember hearing about it and my parents being like, oh, like, where are you going to school? Is this an unsafe town? Like, what, what's the deal mm-hmm. with it? And it was like, no, this is literally unheard of. This mm-hmm. doesn't happen here. It never happens. And it's one of those things like, it never happens until mm-hmm. it does. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it never happens and it's never happened since. Mm-hmm. But 
So as much as I hate um, start, I didn't want to start with the perpetrators because I think that the victims deserve to have their story told Mm -hmm. more. But I think to give the background of them just helps highlight what shitheads they were Mm. and how they were so full of shit right from the start Mm -hmm. right when this started so the two perpetrators were joshua komisarjevsky who was 26 at the time of the crime and stephen hayes who was 44 at the time of the crimes uh and if you look at their mugshots like joshua is like the younger thin tall guy and stephen hayes was like the squat Mm chunkier bald guy mm-hmm. so it's like a bad pair of cartoon characters <laughs> so <laughs> joshua like, who's that pinky in the brain right? oh god yeah one is a yeah. genius and the other's insane can yeah. you can you pair off these guys is one pinky and one the brain actually yes um joshua komisar uh-huh. was described by his former attorney as being a genius okay there you go so okay. nice nice connection thanks so josh was born in <laughs> 1980 his mother was 16 when he had when she had him and she struggled over whether to keep him or not so after two weeks she gave him up for adoption and he was adopted by benjamin and jude komisarjewski who were devout evangelical christians also much tougher last name komisarjewski it's difficult yeah Mm -hmm. they were they have like he has like russian royalty in his family his like yeah his like grandmother was like a russian ballerina or like with the stage it was crazy i didn't write all that down i felt like that was very tangential but But see it came up fun fact (laughs) fun fact (laughs) trivia so josh actually lived on north brookvale road which anybody who's not familiar with cheshire would have no idea where that is in relation to the pettit house but it's actually less than two miles away and it's actually very close like as the crow flies like they're not far at all Mm -hmm. So again, that like that's a pretty nice neighborhood still mm-hmm. that he grew up in. So he had a sister, Naomi. And when Josh was about four years old in 1984, his family took in two foster children, a boy and a girl. The boy's name was Scott. He was 15. And he sexually abused Josh for about three years. Uh, which it started out with Scott making... Uh, Josh posed naked for pictures, which they said like Ugh. it started out innocent, which like... I don't know how innocent like a 15 year old naked model year old is what years would this have been like how how old were they again he was four and he was 15 oh god Scott was 15 Josh was four um and then it escalated to full-scale anal intercourse and he would burn Joshua with cigarettes that did escalate quickly Mm mm-hmm so that was that occurred for about three years and this was all going on while josh was going to an evangelical church where they preached about sin and homosexuality Mm -hmm. and evil and demons and so you have this four-year-old boy who is being sexually assaulted by a guy and he must be thinking like i'm evil like Mm -hmm. this is homosexuality like i'm i'm the devil and not understanding anything about it no like just oh just feeling terrible horrifying so in the early 90s um his sister accused josh of sexually assaulting her so it's sort of like give and get um and the father said that was probably true so the family was notified at after the three years of being sexually assaulted the family ended up finding out that scott was sexually assaulting the children he also sexually assaulted the sister and the other foster sister so they found that out and then they found out that josh had probably sexually assaulted his sister and um 
they did nothing and got no one mental health or any treatment at all. So, um, yeah, that's that's helpful. I see where this is leading. This is a recipe that you may follow if you were into Mm -hmm. making a murderer. These are like Mm -hmm. one part sexual assault receiver, one part sexual assault aggressor and throw in a dash of not receiving treatment. I think I think we've got a murder. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. I think also a tablespoon of a couple serious concussions as a child. Yeah, we also, also do it. Oh. Yes, mm-hmm. he had those mm-hmm. as well. Like, is that like the salt? The, yeah, yeah, the seasoning. Yeah, yeah seasoning, seasoning. Okay. spice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he had the concussions as well. So uh, yeah, he was having a hard time in public school. So his family decided it was because of the satanic influences of his youth. So they um, took him home and homeschooled him. Mm-hmm. That'll when, help. Yep, isolate him with mm-hmm. the people who are abusing him. That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, so he had a history of mental illness, um, including mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and alcoholism. That's shocking. In the summer of 92, uh, his parents sent him to a Bible camp where the techniques um, included speaking in tongues, group humiliation, and guilt mechanisms, which... So middle, middle school? Yeah, I haven't read the scientific articles on it, but I assume that group humiliation is very effective in treating mm-hmm. the trauma caused by um, child sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't print didn't, any out. You but didn't cite that source? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I assume, I assume that, okay. that, that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so this came out um, at his trial, but he had a biological aunt who also wrote in who said that he had a family history of Tourette's, bipolar disorder, OCD, and ADD. So Yikes. not good no. on the mental health front all the way around. Um, so when Josh was 14, he burned down a vacant gas station and so the arson's coming in there. Uh-huh. Uh, he was arrested and brought to a small psychiatric facility against the wishes of his family. If you're hearing page turning, that is one of page 15, yeah. I think, 15 pages. I've got a few notes. Like I, Yeah, just I, a few. I did, so I buckle did some, in. I did some research. Buckle in. So he was diagnosed as depressed and suicidal. He wanted to try medication, but his family said, no, no, no. What we need is is a sweet ass christian retreat <laughs> so With they more group humili- humiliation no 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 um this, <laughs> you can humiliate me for that <laughs> josh's behavior could only be the result of one thing and that is a demonic possession so they did oh. exorcisms oh okay oh, yeah okay. yeah yep total sense right that, it makes complete sense yep. medication can't exercise you um, i have no idea why this occurred when when they did that mm-hmm. i mean like he, he was he was healed um, Mike, you can edit this part out. You may want to back out a little bit. I'm hearing your mouth the saliva. Um, <laughs> okay, thank you. I did just want to say as a disclaimer, I am not saying that the uh, Christian church or that religion cannot serve as mm-hmm. a positive mm-hmm. role model or, you know, cause positive thoughts or healing in mm-hmm. someone. But I am just saying when you have like a tough biological mental history um Mm -hmm. and when you have a serious chemical imbalance in your brain it's real tough to pray that away i mean mean, it's the equivalent of going for a broken bone it's just you can't it's not gonna heal through prayer exactly yeah you You can can try you can ask your friends and family to pray for like a speedy recovery and you know no complications but you need to take the medication like science correct yep so Around the same time, 14, Science. when he burned. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine the alien guy. <laughs> Aliens. 
You've never seen that meme? No. I think we found the first thing we're going to put on our Instagram. Uh, So uh, when he was 14, he was using drugs and he started breaking into houses and he would sneak in at night through unlocked doors. Um, So he was stealing money and electronics from upscale homes to feed his drug habit, which is drug... In Cheshire still? Uh, I believe most of his Mm break-ins occurred in Cheshire. Uh, His drug of choice was crystal meth and cocaine. This guy is like super fucked up though, like right from the beginning. So he only burglarized homes at night when people were home. He used sophisticated equipment like night vision goggles and latex gloves. He would go room to room. This makes my skin crawl. He would go room to room and just watch people sleep and listen to them breathe. Nope. What? No. Yeah, yeah, you nope the fuck out of there. Like what? Yeah, so like, yeah, this is what he was doing when he was like 15, which is like breaking into people's homes and he was just watching them sleep. And um, yeah, I'll get into I'll get into a little bit more later. But um, he also robbed a state trooper's house. So like what a little asshole and crazy the balls on him. Yeah. So he actually he graduated high school despite despite when did he have time his childhood very busy. And he actually, and then in, 90, in 97, yeah, oh, all right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. He had his, his days were free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why he went at night. Yeah. Cause he was in school. Well, and people needed to be home so he could watch them sleep. Uh, in 97, he joined the army reserve and he appeared to do well in an eight week boot camp. And then when he returned to Connecticut, he went back to burglarizing homes. So I mentioned that his former attorney described him as a genius and he meant it. They said that he probably had like a photographic memory and that he could describe every single home he burglarized, what he took from them, including the denomination of the money that he took. Like what a skill to have and what a way to waste it. I was going to say what a waste. I feel like criminals always waste their insane talents mm-hmm. on crime. Like you mm-hmm. could like they could have just been really successful. Use it for good. And like a else. little bit of evil, just small evil, mm-hmm. like you know. No. No. So then in 2002, he was arrested for uh it was unclear. I think around 18 or 19 home invasions. I saw a couple couple places. Wow. Saw said a couple different things, but I believe he was ultimately convicted of 12 and was sentenced to nine years in prison. And that same year, uh, in 2002, his daughter was born. Isn't that so wonderful that he recreated? Mm, That girl's got the genetic deck stacked against her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he Mm -hmm. was a model inmate in prison. And um, in 2007, the spring of 2007, which is around when he was released from prison, he actually gained full custody of his daughter because the mom was a drug addict. And oh was in drug gosh. rehab. Oh, lucky girl. Mm-hmm. So I think the grandparent basically, I, the grandparents had to be involved because yeah. I'm not, I, it wasn't clear whether he was out of prison at the time, but like you're not getting full custody as like a felon unless there's someone else there that's going to. I would think not. Vouch for you, not. I guess. Yeah, I would hope not as well. Um, but so in 2007, after serving about five years, he was released on parole in april so there is a law in connecticut that the prosecutors order the sentencing transcript and they send them to the parole board so that the parole board can read about the offender and the crime and the doc and parole board did not have this transcript when they released him so on paper josh is this young white smart male 
who's only been incarcerated once and was a model prisoner model Mm -hmm. prisoner genius no mental health issues and they let him go they never identified him as a person with high mental health needs or a manipulator and based on what he was charged with he could have served two lifetimes but he did not had they had the 2002 sentencing transcript they would have had um the part where the judge called him a calculated cold-blooded predator because he wasn't just robbing homes for money he was watching people sleep and invading their privacy like that like that is not normal behavior no though you know what's interesting is i wonder and i would say after the fact now that this has occurred i think that that would be enough to keep someone from being released on parole because this crime shook up Connecticut's mm-hmm. parole board and how they were oh, really? reviewing cases. I wonder if he would have gotten released even if they had the transcript. Because they called him a calculated cold-blooded predator. But, you know, almost so what? Like, they would right. have been like, okay, yeah, but he served He served five years. He was mm-hmm. a model inmate. He's really smart. He's got his daughter. He's got his life ahead of him. I think they might have still let him go anyways. Well, and I that comes to the thing I have a hard time with, which is the point of serving in prison is to get the punishment for your crime. And hypothetically, when you come out of that, you're reformed. Yeah. And you're done. You've served your sentence. So at what point do you say, well, no, we're just going to keep you anyway. Right. You know, at what point have you served the proper punishment? Right. So, I mean, I like know. maybe he should have yeah. served more than five years, but eventually he would have gotten out. But so that was there was a huge there was a huge issue with the parole board and parole review Mm. that came after this case. But so he was this this I did not know this previously and it blew my mind. So when he was released, he was ordered to wear an ankle bracelet for 90 days. It was removed on July 19th. Within 72 hours, he was burglarizing homes in Cheshire at night. And within 96 hours, he was in the Pettit's home. Oh, ooh, I just got chills. I have chills. That. I Same. have chills, ooh. too. I, I, oh, it just, it's just so. It's just, I think it's because it's so, it's like with any of the ones that are like, it, can, it hasn't, it would never happen in a place like this. You just think like, not, I'm going to start getting, because we're in a town very similar, literally right. town next door. And I just think like it could happen anywhere. Imagine you're just and I think yeah. that's, reporting recording a podcast. Maybe. I think that's why the case was such a, a big deal because they are all of us. Right. They they right. did nothing wrong. They were randomly chosen. It's everyone's literal worst Ooh. nightmare. Yeah. So it just yeah yeah. But yep. So within 96 hours of having that wow. ankle bracelet and that ankle bracelet was to monitor him to make sure that he was home at night. Within 96 hours, he was in the Pettit's home. So he was um, a manipulative genius. Yeah, clearly. Mm -hmm. He was working with um, Stephen Hayes, who no one has described as a manipulative genius. (laughs) He's Uh, pinky. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So Stephen Hayes also had a shitty childhood, which, again, recipe for Mm -hmm. criminals. Um, He was regularly physically abused by his father, and he was sexually abused by a babysitter at age 10, which... I'm not I'm not saying it it was consensual in any way shape or form because the the age difference is right. insane but he, I read an article where he was like she taught me so many things and mm-hmm. I learned so many things so like it's still disgusting it's mm-hmm. absolutely still mm-hmm. rape but I'm just saying it's not to me like the sodomizing and getting burned mm-hmm. by cigarettes mm-hmm. just seems like a different situation like added yeah but at 10 yeah. years old you can't consent it's still rape no. but yeah because of this figure physical abuse um he ended up with a fetish involving women's old sneakers and um, 
<laughs> he associated sneakers with arousal and would use old sneakers to get off. Me too, bud. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I don't. I just thought that was a little fun fact. I had Thanks to throw for sharing in there. that. Fact. Didn't know that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. I'm speechless. sneakers. I, I was sneakers. trying to think of something. Who witty, would fuck it? Bet you'll, bet you'll never look at sneakers the same way again. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, he also witnessed his father beating his mother and one of his mm-hmm. brothers, and uh, is really fucked up. But if his dad thought so, he had two brothers, um, Brian and Matthew, and if his dad thought that Stephen or Matthew had done something bad, he would put the two boys in a room and force them to duke it out as to who would be the guilty party and whoever admitted to it would suffer a severe beating at his hands. Imagine what that would do to your relationship with your siblings. Oh, yeah. Pitting you against each other yeah. in the worst possible lose, way. Because I feel like you're probably getting the shit beat out of you in the room to not be the one admitting guilt. And then if you end up losing that, then you go get... Yeah. By your father. And like severe beatings. I guess like his brother Matthew suffered a broken leg during one incident. Like severe beatings. Um, So by age 10, he was self-medicating with alcohol and marijuana, which like I can't say that I blame him based on that situation. Um, And by 14, he was committing burglaries to support his drug habit, smoking marijuana daily and was sent to a facility for troubled juveniles. Uh, Age 15, he was sent to a psych hospital. Uh, 1980 he got his first conviction before he graduated high school and then between 1980 to May 2007 when he was released from prison um, he was in and out of prison he was in prison for 27 years no 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 no. between between early 1980 and May 2007 he was in and out of prison okay okay. he had at least um, 26 occasions that he was in prison or charged uh, by the time of the murder so he was he was addicted to cocaine and he was he was committing petty crimes to support his drug habit. So he didn't he didn't burglarize homes. He would burglarize cars mm. mostly in the daylight. He would go to public parks. He would watch people, you know, get all their mm-hmm. get what they want, their cell phone, whatever, go for a hike. And then he'd break into their car and take whatever was mm. in their car. So his aim was to make sure that the victim was not present. So total opposite mm. of the other guy who wanted mm. you to be there so he could watch you. Correct. Which is, yeah, there there was a. a a big split as to who was the criminal mastermind behind mm. this and who caused the escalation. And just from even the most basic information I have given you guys, I feel like you might have an opinion already. I may have been able to formulate an mm-hmm. opinion on this mm-hmm. right now. Calculated. Calculated. So he has a son and a daughter. Um, his daughter was around 15 at the time of the crime. I didn't find much information on his son, but I just think it's important to know that these two assholes had children when they did what they did um even though he had nonviolent offenses um his brother said he was an absolute asshole his brother brian described him as manipulative deceptive and actually said he hoped someone would put a bullet in his head before trial so no no love lost between between these family members no and his uh brother matthew said if he wasn't on drugs at the time of the crime flip the switch so he also uh, wished harm and death on him uh and oh Matt, that kind of flipped okay yeah flip oh flip the switch yeah, yeah spoiler alert uh they mm-hmm. were on death row okay um got it got but it matthew said when they were young his his brother steven mm-hmm. said oh my gosh you have to come feel this the stove is so cold and then held his hand on a hot burner yikes so like yeah even though steven had non-violent crimes like if that's true that's mm-hmm. that's not it's a good up. indication yep 
So his last conviction before Cheshire was October 1st, 2003. He was guilty of third degree burglary and sentenced to five years in prison. He was released in June 2006 to Berman Treatment Center, which is where he met Joshua, his roommate. Oh, gosh. I was going to ask how the two of them met. In prison, they met in a treatment center. Correct. And he was transferred from Berman Treatment Center to another facility called the Silliman House, where Joshua was also his roommate. Do you know where those were in Connecticut? Uh, I believe they're both in Hartford. Um, And then... He Hayes was ultimately sent back to prison in November 2006 for a technical violation. He had a dirty urine. He did a podcast where he was absolutely adamant that he did not take any drugs and that the Mm. house set him up to send him back to prison. But I just can't imagine that that's true. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I yeah. I'm I'm gonna call bullshit on that because why would the treatment center set him up with a dirty urine? But he was paroled in May 2007, and he reconnected with Joshua Cocaine Anonymous in Hartford. And um, they became fast friends, you know, really bonding uh-huh. over their, you know, prior relationship. Love of burglary. Yeah. That's a hard word to say. Burglary. It's like regularly. Regularly. Burglary. Burglary. But they both needed money. They both um, wanted to make money. They talked about, you know, maybe starting a contract company together because they were both doing um, some contracting Mm -hmm. work. But, you know, mounting pressure to pay bills, you know, buy a car. Stephen wanted his own apartment. And he, you know, with all that pressure, he relapsed at the end of June 2007. So he started doing drugs again. Apparently, he went on, like, insane cocaine binges in the weekends of July leading up to this crime. Mm -hmm. So Joshua, apparently, he originally brought this up in 2006. Brought it up again. Hey, quick money. Let's burglarize some houses. It's like, it's my jam. I know how to do it. It's quick money. And bonus, you get to watch people sleep. Yeah. I'll show, I'll show you how to do it. Yep. Now, Stephen said, this is this is where, like, there, there's a lot of versions of this event because you had you mm-hmm. had Stephen who um, um, confessed. That's yep. the word, confessed. Stephen confessed. Joshua confessed. Um, so you have those two versions, and then you sort of have, like, the what came out at their trial. Mm-hmm. So Stephen said that in 2006, Joshua first first broached the idea of let's burglarize a home, tie people up, and then force one of them to go to a bank in the morning. I don't believe that version of events. That's like a very specific specific plan. plan. And I feel like I feel like that plan alone is already a home invasion gone wrong. Like there's no way to plan that out where that's going to go successfully for you. Like, I just, I don't see that happening. So I don't believe that. I believe it was more he he said, you know, you can burglarize homes. Mm-hmm. And Steve was like, nah, I'm not into that. Too many things right. can go wrong. So then after Steven relapsed, his mother was like, you got to get out of the house. I'm kicking you out. You have the weekend and you've got to be gone Monday. So that's when Steven said, all right, let's talk about it. I'm going to be homeless. I'm running out of options. Like, mm. can we do a home invasion? And he was like, you're serious? I'm serious. Let's do Did this. Did we just become best friends? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yep. <laughs> These two jackasses. So prior to the Pettit home um, on July 21st, 2007. Oh, yeah. They wanted to practice. So, so Josh wanted to show Stephen how easy it was. So two uh-huh. other homes in Cheshire. Uh, they first home only, only Josh went in 
and he took cash and left a large carving knife on the table in the family room. I really thought you were going to say left a large shit. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really thought that's what you were going to say. That would be diabolical. Yeah. <laughs> what, would, what would be his name? You know, like the wet bandits. Would he be like the stinky stalker? <laughs> something <laughs> something good on Stinky that's stalker, quick. yeah. That's good. Oh, God. No, he left a large kitchen knife, a carving knife on the table in the family room. Oh. Can you imagine, like, you don't know that somebody broke in and you uh. just go downstairs and it's like, hey, babe, who left the giant yeah. kitchen knife on and the table? Like, imagine knowing that and then hearing about the actual God. murders. Uh, it's ugh. like, you guys know the Dane Cook skit where he's like, you just go in and you steal the, the battery the batteries from the remote and they're like yeah. is that what they took they took the batteries <laughs> like you just invade someone's yeah. privacy yeah. and they're just like did they touch that shower curtain like yeah. did they look at this like is this missing where did the- yeah, i lost well, my keys did they take well, my keys well people like- broke in people broke into my house oh, right the yeah. one we're sitting in recording mm-hmm. this podcast mm-hmm. and they they were in our bedroom like they threw a broom on our bed they dumped out all of my jewelry boxes they took the pillowcase they took like ipads but the worst part was like i had to sleep mm-hmm. in my bed the night it happened mm-hmm. and just, like, like completely it just like it's so unnerving and it just feels like like dirty because somebody else was there and you don't know what they did and watching yeah. me as yeah. i'm sleeping I wasn't here Ugh, for it, but like, right. can you imagine? No, <sighs> no, I cannot. So yeah, the second home they went to, they stole. Uh, again, it was just Josh that went in, but while he was in there, um, Stephen got nervous and went in to get him. But they stole a cell phone, cash, credit cards, and a family photo. Oh, see, that's like it's extra, like a trophy again. Yes, extra oh. creepy. It has no street value. It's not like they're gonna sell that for drugs. It's just him being like a fucking creep. Oh. Yeah, don't like it. Do not like. Nope the fuck out of there. Would I notice what someone stole out of my house is the real question. If it weren't like an iPad or something like yeah. that, would I notice? I don't know. I'm thinking I wouldn't notice if like I, a that's picture went missing. kind of where I'm her. headed. Yeah. yeah. I'd notice probably like a month later or something. I'd be yeah. like, where did that photo go? What yeah. happened to it? I would never but put two you, and two together that like the person no. who was in my home took no. it. Why do they want a picture of me? Right. Like, I mean, like I'm beautiful and everything, you know, but I, I don't think still, they're taking a picture I would of me. still a picture of you. Thanks. But re- like, how do people like I, I do hear this when people are like, yeah, they stole a family picture. They stole a vase. Like, do you really know? I feel like some people who are like OCD cleaners have like a solid inventory mm. in their mind of what's in their house because mm. they move the object to clean that's fair so like okay. if you have that's yeah, fair. if you have like a dresser right. with like five right. photos and yeah. you dust it mm-hmm. three times a week you would notice if one of those photos was missing i see your point about noticing later then because i wouldn't have noticed walking around right. but yeah okay all right i'm on I, board guys i'm not that person i'll never notice so ever we can, so we can have her you can steal photos. all my family photos and i, I will okay. not notice not noticed noted got some cute kids i'm gonna take those photos <laughs> <laughs> so basically komisar jeffsky just wanted to show uh stephen hayes that it was easy look how easy we did it we're oh. good like let's do this um so again this is where the stories diverge the next day um you know stephen said the next day they were talking in the afternoon on the 22nd and he says that Josh said to him, I've got the perfect house with a doctor and his wife and two kids. Like, get ready. Let's do this. But that doesn't really seem to be how the story played out. So I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think they're Mm -hmm. both full of shit. But so the night of the home invasion, 
Um, Steve texted Josh around 845 and said he was chomping at the bit to get started. So I think while while they may not have had uh, however it played out, they knew that they were going to do a home invasion, I think, based on the correspondence Mm -hmm. between them. Um, he said he needs a margarita and then Josh did not respond. So he was like, are we still on? And Josh said, yeah. And Hayes said soon. And Josh told him to hold his horses as he was putting his five-year-old daughter to bed, which again, it still blows my mind how you can care for your child and then go do what you did. Your daughter too. Right. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then go do what you did. And Hayes said, dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. (laughs) So around 10 p.m. Hold he your made, horses. Yeah. Oh, okay. hold, That's and, what he, I'm like, yeah. Yep. He has, yeah, he has said, hold, no. <laughs> like, hold your horses. horses. <laughs> the horses want to get loose. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> Colby's mentally canvassing all the horse farms in Connecticut. Oh, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they were going to burglarize a horse farm. That's a that's a very unknown fact right there, is that they <laughs> that were the going to burglarize a horse farm. <laughs> we're going to get hate comments on our first podcast. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> so around 10 p.m., um, they decided to meet up at the Stop and Shop in Cheshire, which is where I used to grocery shop. Oh, I've been there a few times. Uh Yeah. So they said they got some drinks, you know, talked about the money that they could make. um, And then they went and they canvassed the pet at home, went out for some more drinks. And then we're going to pause their story right there. That was a Monday night, by the way. I was just looking it up. Sunday night into Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it was the morning of the 23rd. Yeah. So, oh, well, so they went into the home well it was 3 a.m so it was 3 a.m on the 23rd but they were planning this on the 22nd so the pettit family um i mentioned dr william bill pettit he was uh what did i say he was he was 50 years old at the time of the crime so he was the pettit name is a very big name in plainville people know them people knew his parents um he was an endocrinologist in plainville and he was also the medical director of the jocelyn diabetes center at the hospital of central connecticut um, and his in-laws describe him. He was a very hard worker. He'd go into work at 7 a.m., come home at 9.30 p.m., just like really loved his job. Mm. And he has not practiced medicine since. So that's very sad. Mm. Um, his wife, Jennifer Hawk Pettit, she was 48 at the time of the crime. Um, she was the daughter of a United Methodist minister she was the nurse and co-director of the health center at Cheshire Academy, which for anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's a very prestigious uh, high school, pre, like pre-college. Prep school, prep yeah, school, prep yeah. school is the term in, in Cheshire. Um, she began her career as a pediatric oncology nurse at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, which is where she met Bill. Oh. What kind of person would it take to be a pediatric oncology yeah. nurse? I mean, seriously. Mm. So that was in 1981. She met Bill. He was a third year med student at Dartmouth. He was doing rotations and he saw her and she was blonde with big eyes and he wanted to impress her as a know-it-all. So he went into the room and he was like, you're not taking the blood pressure correctly. This is how you do it. You're doing it wrong. And she just sat back, quietly observed him. And she was like, okay. That's not at all how you do it. And then she just, you know, did it correctly. You know, she didn't say she didn't say anything to him. So um, he just fell in love with her for their first date. um, Bill actually invited his parents and two of his parents friend on their first date. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Maybe he just really thought that like he just knew she was the one. And this like got this up. 
<laughs> bring the girl home to mom right away oh. right out of the gates um so they were married in 1985 in 1989 they had their daughter Haley. Um, she was a graduate of Miss Porter School, which for wow. anybody that doesn't know is a very prestigious prep school oh, yep. in Farmington, yeah. Connecticut. Hashtag Connecticut. Yeah. Yep. She was on the varsity cross country team. She was on the basketball team. She rode crew. She was a high school honor roll student, straight A student. She was elected wow. to a senior leadership position of the athletic association head. And she was awarded for exceptional community service because her mom was diagnosed with MS in 1998 and she was devastated. So she wanted to help her mom. She wanted to raise money for her. So she started an MS walk team called Haley's hope. She was the captain. And in seven years through sponsorships and donations, she raised over $55,000 as a spokesperson for the society and her friends so she was accepted to dartmouth and would have started in the fall to study medicine like her dad and close friends said she could have bragged about her life and all of her accomplishments but never did they said she didn't brag not once never wow just very humble uh very wholesome i brag about a whole lot less than that um a hundred percent yeah yeah i'd be like i'm going to dartmouth did you hear i'm going to dartmouth did you hear i'm going where to are dartmouth? you going to school again is it something with a dart uh, dartmouth right dartmouth, yeah, dartmouth. Yeah, it's dartmouth. Mm-hmm. and then the youngest daughter michaela was born in 1995 um she was going to take over Haley's hope when Haley went oh. to college and mm-hmm. call it michaela's miracles oh my gosh and she loved to cook for her family and did so the evening of the murders. Her grandparents and her aunt said that she was the shyest kid, that she was so shy she oh. would look down when she was walking, but said that if she ever saw somebody by themselves or having trouble, that she would stop and talk to them, which I just breaks my heart. I'm what a good choosing kid. to for- listen to you describe these people and forgetting why you're describing them to me. I, it's, they sound wonderful. This case is just yeah. absolutely heartbreaking. So when I say like this is... You know, after a crime, you're you're, you're going to have a hard time finding people saying bad things about people. But I, I would feel comfortable in saying that nobody had a bad thing no. to say about any of these people. I mean, they were involved in their church. I mean, the mom was involved in committees and she taught CCD and, you know, Bill. See, that's it. the good kind of church. Yes. Yeah. Bill Pettit was, you know, beloved as this doctor mm. and endocrinologist and. And again, the the daughters were just very impressive. Mm. So they had very bright futures. Mm. Um, So July 22nd, 2007 was the day that Josh and Steven were planning to do this. It was a typical summer day for the Pettits. Bill, Jennifer, and Michaela all went to church. Bill played golf in the afternoon with his father. And then Jennifer and Michaela went to the beach. Um, Haley had been with friends, but she was going to be home for dinner. So Michaela wanted to cook dinner for the family. Around 7.30, they went to stop and shop to buy groceries. Um, And Joshua Komisarjewski was in the parking lot Mm. and saw Michaela and Jennifer drive up in a Mercedes. Joshua said he was there to meet um, some, uh, get payment from a contractor he worked for that day. And he said he saw them pull up in the nice car and it caught his attention. Um, so he after he got paid by the contractor they bought the groceries they needed they left and he said that he decided to follow them home for whatever reason gee i wonder what that reason might have been yeah he saw their house and thought it would be nice to live there someday and have no financial stress now he said that it was because he saw the nice car the nice home Mm -hmm. 
but a lot of the attorneys involved, a lot of the arguments were that he was attracted and drawn to Michaela. Ugh. Yeah. And this is the one that has the five-year-old daughter? Yes. Ugh. That's why I'm like, isn't it so what fucked is up? wrong with him? Like you put your you put your five year old to bed and then mm-hmm. you go do this. Like I just yeah. I don't I, I don't know I don't understand. Um, but Michaela and Jennifer went home. Michaela made a pastured dinner for the family around 10 p.m. They all sat down to watch Army Wives together, which was one of their favorite shows. And Bill read a newspaper on the couch. Uh, when the show ended at 11, the girls locked up the house and went upstairs. They left a light on in the kitchen for the cat, which is like my mom's move. She loves to waste electricity for the animals. <laughs> uh, Bill fell asleep on the couch, which uh, he said was not unusual because he didn't want to disturb Jennifer in bed after she fell asleep because she had MS and he wanted to make sure she got her rest. So Haley went to her own room and Michaela and Jennifer curled up in the master bed and read the newest Harry Potter book together, which I looked it up. Deathly Hallows was released on July 14th, 2007. So oh, that must have been the book Deathly that they Hallows. were reading Oh, together. So again, as I mentioned, Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky during this time had gone to the bar, had some drinks, canvassed the house, had some more drinks, and then came back, parked on the street. And around 3 a.m., they walked up to the pet at home. Now, Steven said that Joshua went straight to the back and found this unlocked basement Ugh. door. Joshua said that, you know, they put on their face mask. He said that they were working on the fly, but even it doesn't seem like this seemed yeah. very calculated yeah. to me. Whether or not the pettits were the target, I don't know at what point exactly they solidify that. Maybe it is after he saw them at Stop and Shop, but. I don't think they were working on the fly. I Mm -mm. think Steven had a uh, contractor, like a construction hat, like one of those like Carhartt ones that Mm -hmm. he cut holes in, pulled it down over his face. And then Joshua either had a t-shirt or a handkerchief that he cut holes in and put over his face. And they got in again through that basement door, which was unlocked. He said, I didn't know this word before Bilko doors. Oh yeah. They're those big metal. Yeah. The big metal doors. So he said that he found that those were open and he went down there and um the door from the basement to the house was also oh. unlocked fortunately so, if you ever tried to get through my bilco door you would hear it three towns over it's oh, very loud that's good so, that's yeah. a great alarm system yeah, it's built in mm-hmm. i like that yep um so they could they could see uh bill sleeping on the couch um so when josh walked in he said that he wanted um a weapon because he didn't want to take him without a weapon um, which, by the way, Stephen had a BB gun on him that they had bought at the Walmart in Southington the day before. <sighs> so he had that. Um, so after Joshua entered, he grabbed this baseball bat, which this is a completely random fact, but I just wrote it down. It was actually a giveaway from a rum brand from a store that uh, Bill's father owned that he had in the house. Completely oh. random fact. But yeah. anyways, I wrote it down. So there you yeah. go. You're welcome. Um, so... Again, the stories diverge. So Joshua said he's got this bat and he walks up to the dad and he said that he stood over him for about 15 to 20 minutes, just, you know, mustering up the courage to, to do something. He's like, I just, I, I couldn't do it. He said, and you know, Steven's at the window, just motioning me to do it. Steven says, Joshua walks right into the house, starts beating the shit out of Bill and he's motioning to him like, stop, this wasn't the plan. What are you doing? Yikes. So I'm really leaning again more towards Steven's story mm-hmm. just based on Joshua's history and mm-hmm. what a, um obvious sociopath slash psychopath he is. 
either way, Bill was woken up by being slammed in the head with this baseball bat. He hit him four or five times, oh. and he had a split basically from his eyebrow yeah. like to the back of his head. I mean, he he was in rough shape. Um, so they hit him with the bat, and then Josh let Steven in the house through the door. And Josh said that when he hit Bill in the head, Bill let out an unearthly scream that Josh had never heard before. Oh. And he wanted him to stop, so he just kept hitting him until he stopped. And oh. he said at one point, Bill was just, like, curled up in the corner of the couch, staring at him, confused. Oh, well, right. He was uh, down on the couch. Okay. Of yep. course he's confused. If you yeah. woke up with someone yeah. slamming you in the head with a baseball oh bat, my God. like... What Hopefully else he, like, didn't know. Hopefully the first hit just took him out. So I don't know that he was completely unconscious Ugh. from the start. So they tied him up. They tied his hands and his feet with ropes and zip ties. And... Bill heard one of the guys say, if he moves, put two bullets in him. So now Joshua says that that didn't happen, that they asked him. Well, he didn't say specifically that didn't happen, but he, you know, he said, you know, I just said, is there anybody else in the house? And mm -hmm. but why would he ask if there was anybody else in the house if he followed them from stop and shop and knows that they have a kid? Yeah, where like, do you think the small child went overnight? Mm -hmm. like right. It's 3 like, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you know, she's in the house yeah. and that's yeah. why Definitely. you're interested in it. Yeah. So again, multiple stories, but they said, you know, is there anybody else in the house? He told them that the girls were upstairs. So um, Bill did. He, Bill told them that the, I can't that the believe girls he was were home. Talking. Yeah, he was. Apparently, this is what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm sure he wasn't dead off the bat. No, no pun intended. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's not. It's I had to. Literally, um, no pun intended. Yeah, but the fact that he could even comprehend anything and then respond after getting three or four blows to the head. I get it. I would assume that there's got to be a pure adrenaline aspect too. Like, yeah. right? Because you're yeah. like, what is happening? Wow. Um, and of course, just, you know, to reassure him, Josh and Steven said, don't worry, we're just here for money. Like, don't worry. We're just, we're here for money. It's going to be okay. They asked Bill <sighs> if he had a safe. He said, there's no, there's no safe. So Steven and Josh go upstairs with their BB gun and rope. Um, they find Michaela in bed asleep with Jen. So Steven goes over to Jen's side of the bed and Joshua goes over to Michaela's and they both put their hands over their mouth and shake them awake. Can you imagine? No, no, no. I no. fucking bite them. I mean, have I you ever him. had that? Have you ever Ugh. had that sensation where you roll over in bed and you open your eyes and there's a shadow yes. and it looks like a person yes. and your heart drops yes. to your toes? Yes. Can you imagine? But like, but there's like, actually someone standing there Ooh. and they're holding you. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, this I, is so. So I've listened. Of course, we've been listening to all these podcasts and listening to crimes being retold. But it is so much more real listening to you describe this. I'm like it's it's awful it's unimaginable it's unimaginable what happened this family um he oh. said they said that they were confused but compliant and uh they tied their hands and feet and put pillowcases over their heads so they couldn't see them now joshua being the noble person that he was you know i don't know at what point this happened but he said that he knew that the pillowcases were probably hot so he rolled them up so that they only covered their eyes so that their nose and mouth were still showing so that gentlemen. it wasn't too hot i know right yeah. very, like, very considerate so thoughtful 
So um, then they went down uh, to Haley's room. Steven stood over Haley with a gun and shook her awake. And they told Haley that they wouldn't hurt her and just wanted money, which is the same thing that they told to um, Michaela and Jennifer. They tied their hands and their feet. Now, at this point, all the women were tied, but they weren't restrained to anything. Okay. Because at, at one point, they get tied to their beds. But mm-hmm. right now, they're just mm-hmm. they're just tied, but not restrained. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, they, they kept mentioning that they were compliant through the whole night. Because these men kept saying, like, we're not yeah. going to hurt you. All we want is money. We're not going to hurt you. I, I want to say that I probably would believe them too and be compliant because you don't know what they're going to do if you're not compliant. Also, but like, I can't fight anybody. Well, <laughs> no. I would not win. I would try to get up and run and I'd be tackled and, like, yeah. physically can't fight somebody. So there's no i i have a better chance of hoping that they are telling the truth that they just want money they right. were they were wearing masks when they came in the house they were yeah i so would probably believe them then because they're not showing oh, me their face but if, right. if they were doing this saying they're not going to hurt me they're not going to hurt me and i could see their face yeah. they're lying absolutely mm-hmm. oh that's actually a really good point that's i don't think i would be i don't think that thought would go through my head i think i would be peeing myself probably i think i would just want to believe them enough yeah. to yeah. listen to yeah. them and be compliant i would just want to believe them enough so the men after they they tied everybody up the men proceeded um through the house looking for valuables um when they were in uh jennifer's room she was telling them where the valuables and the jewelry was Mm -hmm. um you know she confirmed there was no safe in the house joshua was only interested in money but apparently steven was sort of roaming for like jewels and and whatever else he could find in the house so they they'd gone downstairs too. bill was still bleeding profusely on the couch Mm -hmm. in the sunroom um, Joshua said he put a towel on his head because he was bleeding and he wanted to help him. So that was really super helpful, really thoughtful of him. So they ended up moving him down to the basement and they tied him to a support pole. And again, Joshua wanted him to be comfortable. So he put pillows under him. Um, and now something to know about Bill is he was on blood thinners for a heart issue oh, that no. he had oh, in the past. And now even without blood thinners, head wounds bleed oh, yeah. profusely. So he was on blood thinners. So he was bleeding profusely. Yikes. And I guess Joshua said at one point that he's probably responsible for saving his life because he put that sort of towel and sort of makeshift pressure bandage on his head yeah he's really he's he's, he's a real stand-up guy he is a stand-up <laughs> guy that's what i was gonna say so they ended up moving bill to the basement he's tied to the support pole and that's where he stays for the rest of the night men found beer in the basement drank throughout the night really just helped themselves so around 3 30 or 4 o'clock in the morning steven found a check register for bank of america and it said that they had forty thousand dollars in the account so they were so like, for a half hour approximately they've got the girls the women tied up upstairs and they're just roaming around the house bills in the basement mm-hmm. just that's terrifying so you're upstairs with yeah. a pillowcase over your eyes not your mouth and mm-hmm. listening i presume you can hear these ransacking oh mm-hmm. just because i think i always assume this all happens in like a minute you know oh. what i mean in a couple minutes but to sit for a half hour you know oh a half hour um this went on for seven hours I what? I can't. They entered the house around 3 a.m. and they did not leave until around 10 a.m. Oh my god. 7 hours they put this family through. 7 hours. Awful. So it's 3:34 o'clock they find this bank this this check register and they were like, "Wow, that's a lot of money." 
what if we sent the mom to the bank to get the money? But not all the money, because the bank would be suspicious if we took out the whole 40000 So let's take out fifteen. So they decide, wow, that's a great plan. Yes, yes, let's do that. Let's send the mom in the morning. And um, I guess let's just chill with this family for another five hours because it's like four in the morning when they decide this bank doesn't open till 9 Mm a.m. So that's where they are. They talked to the mom about it. They said, you know, Jennifer, this this is our idea. And she says, no problem. I will do this. She's completely compliant. Wants to save her family, says no problem. So Joshua says you know while he's in the room with jennifer and michaela he said that he locked eyes with michaela locked eyes from across the room (laughs) i'm sorry that's the only thing i could think of when i heard that (laughs) so yeah he uh locked eyes with michaela and was taken back by how calm she was he said 11 yep he said it's like she understood that they wouldn't hurt them and it caught him off guard he was just so taken back with her this 11 year old by the innocence of a child oh. some would say mm-hmm. so they're hanging out in this house joshua was in charge of michaela and bill and Stephen was in charge of Haley and jennifer throughout the night they let them use the bathroom they would untie them and let them you know go they'd get them a glass of water you know very just gracious hosts. very gentlemanly how yes, surreal that while, would have been while just invading this house awful they're but giving surreal. me water i'm yeah. not gonna think you're gonna kill why are you hydrating me yeah yes mm-hmm so then the men realize it's starting to get light outside and joshua's car was still down the street and by the way some sometime i read this in like one article around like 4 30 in the morning one of the neighbors drove home from work and like drove by their house and didn't notice anything and apparently the pettits had like no blinds or curtains in their windows downstairs so like they could have seen them it's not like they shut the shades like they could have seen them doing this but they just didn't. They were just driving. And I'm thinking, like, when I drive home, like, I'm going to drive home tonight. I don't look around me at all. I don't observe no. my surroundings, which is terrible. But well, I just you don't. You should be watching the road. So that's Well, okay. no, no, no. I watch yeah. the road. But I would be <laughs> looking at, like, random houses on no. the side of the street to notice that. how would that you actually, in that amount of time, be able, be able to pick out that something is really terrible the or something like Register that. Yeah. that this is what's exactly. happening. Exactly. Yeah. So um, they decided they have to move his car. They argue about how they're going to to move it. Um, so it's at this point that they start tying people to their bed. So they moved Michaela from mm-hmm. the room with her mom into her own room. They tied her hands and her feet to her bed frame. Same thing with Haley. Same thing with Jennifer. Um, and now Joshua confessed after this and one of the things that you can tell his confession is absolute bullshit he said at this point that Bill was just his hands and feet were tied but he was on the couch and when they left the house they said he was completely free to you know he wasn't restrained to anything no fucking way I get that like I get that he was in really really rough shape but there's no way they would leave the house with everybody restrained except him they wouldn't just leave him on the couch so that he's full of shit yeah um but so um, Stephen drove the family car, the Pettit family car, and Joshua took his car, and they ended up moving it to a condo complex uh, nearby. And then they fought on the way back because Joshua was afraid of getting stopped for speeding on the way back to this crime. I mean, <laughs> yeah, fair. Where you're in such a, where are you going in such a hurry <laughs> <Yeah>. there? Uh... <laughs> so they they get back to the house, and you know they started thinking like, oh no, um, what if 
somebody has to go to work like won't they notice that they're missing from work Mm -hmm. so they go down to bill and they're like where do you work what do you do like what's happening and he was like i don't need to be at work until 8 30 but i'm supposed to do rounds at the hospital at seven she's like that's not gonna work so they go up to jennifer and they're like you know what do you do and she's like i'm i'm a nurse i work at a school like i'm a teacher it's fine it's the summer i'm i don't have to be anywhere and they were like okay well we need you to call bill out of work and she said okay so they untie her they bring her downstairs she calls bill's work and said he's gonna he's not gonna be in today he doesn't feel well she doesn't say anything while she's on the phone she's very compliant what can you do like i I keep trying to put myself in these positions and think like there's literally nothing coded you could say that no nothing i first of all could not come up with anything but what is the person gonna think i know like other than it's kind of weird that that you know the wife's calling him but but I then, just like you'd feel so helpless talking to someone right yeah like the person who yeah. answered the phone call at work that day definitely feels terrible oh, but like yeah. how how would you no. have known? no you wouldn't yeah you would yeah. not have known God, but i mean awful. they had been married for over 20 years like and if, yeah. if she knew the people at the hospital if like yeah. if you think if your husband was like truly that ill if they were still sleeping you'd call them out of work so i, I don't think it would be enough to raise red flags for anybody you'd have to no. say something strange like and just strange enough that the person on the other line would be like, somebody should go check mm-hmm. on him. But I don't know what you would say in that but, scenario. But would they? Because how many times have you had a hunch where you're like, that feels weird, and then do absolutely nothing about it? Right. Yeah. 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 So, but then they were like, okay, so she was, she's compliant. I feel good about this. Mm-hmm. I think this bank thing is going to work. She's cooperating. Like, we're going to be, we're going to be good to go. So Josh is hanging around Michaela's bedroom for most of the night because he's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and S- Stephen came in and, and said, I've got to talk to you. Stephen realizes that he's, you know, canvassing the house and touching everything and that <gasps> his eyelashes are falling out all <laughs> oh, over no. the house and, you know, that his gloves had broken and now he's worried about DNA. He's worried about... Well, that's s- what happens when you spend seven hours in a house. Oh, yeah. Just like drinking, <laughs> drinking beer. Yeah. He said he said he was using their toilet. He was afraid oh, that his God. like pee splashed up and, you know, you think? would lead to DNA. Mm-hmm. And now they're convicted felons. So like they're in the system. So right. like you're hit anyways. Um so you know he said we need to get gasoline because you know we need to destroy the dna evidence again this is where steven and josh's stories diverge joshua said gasoline we're not gonna light a fire i'm stunned by this idea steven says well no my plan was never to start a fire i just thought that if i poured gasoline on everything they would need hazmat teams and that would help destroy the evidence and it would slow them down wasn't he supposed to be the brain no not steven steven oh, was so, the oh, one that said nobody Joshua. yeah, yeah. nobody accused yeah. honestly if, if he really didn't intend to light it interesting concept because everyone's gonna be very careful with a bunch of stuff doused in gasoline right i think yeah. interesting but i don't know that i believe it i think the more likely story is steven said that he was concerned about dna was concerned that joshua mm-hmm. was leaving hairs he was leaving mm-hmm. eyelashes sweat whatever <laughs> and and joshua said fire destroys everything yeah and he joshua said that, was like i have a plan for that and the concept was raised not that they would burn the house down with the family in it but that when joshua went to the bank with jennifer that um no when stephen went to the bank with jennifer joshua would take the rest of the family out in the other car and then they would burn the house down while they were all out of it so he said that was the plan so stephen went downstairs got gallons of windshield washer fluid and emptied them out so he had these these 
gallon buckets. Oh, like um, to get gas. He had to, to go, go get, get gas. the gas. Yes, okay. he had to go get gasoline. Yeah. So he oh. left the house around 7 a.m. Uh, and bought about $10 of gas. And apparently he got lost trying to find the gas station and called Josh and... He was like, how do I get back to Cheshire from Waterbury? And, you know, what what an idiot. mm -hmm. Apparently he was driving towards like Southington and he was at like um, Richard Chevrolet and was like, where's the closest gas station? And Josh was like, "Uh, Southington, like you need you're going the wrong way. Yikes. Also, we don't live in the middle of nowhere. There are like gas stations everywhere. Was there a very specific gas station he needed to go to? Well, where they live in Cheshire, too, if you're coming out to Route 10, the main road, there's there's like literally a gas station at every exit onto the main road. Yeah. Like almost every one, like whichever way you come out. Had to get those reward points. Got to go to Shell, right? Like, <laughs> well, they did go to Stop and Shop. Doesn't Stop and Shop sponsor Shell? Shell? Yes, there yeah. is some sort of a relationship there. Yeah. So you got to get the points. He, yeah. he went grocery shopping earlier in the they day. They were short on money, so... Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Stephen comes back to the house again. Joshua is in Michaela's room. He says, you know, Stephen comes back in again and says, I've got to talk to you. And he says he's, you know, raving about the DNA. And he says, you said my name in front of them. You called me Stephen. And Joshua says, we've got the masks on. They've got the pillowcases on. Like, we're we're fine. So he's again, they confess but each of them are just pointing fingers at right. each other. And, and basically, they both escalated the situation, and it was out of control. But around 8.30 a.m., Stephen unties Jennifer completely, and they leave to go to Bank of America. And at that point, Bill was still tied in the basement, and the girls were tied to their beds upstairs. Um, at that point, when Stephen left, Joshua let Haley use the bathroom and then tied her back up. And then he went into Michaela's room. So trigger warning um, for anybody because child sexual assault is involved. So he says now mm-hmm. in his confession, he calls her KK the oh. whole time, oh. Ew. Oh. which is the family's nickname for her. And he called her that because he heard Jennifer and Haley calling her that. So he calls her KK oh. through his whole confession. That's he, awful. He said that um, him and KK were just shooting the shit. And he said she he thought that she was between 14 and 16, which oh, that, that makes, makes it, it so better. much better. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know. What, like, what what difference does that make? No. So he says, again, this is from his confession. He says he's talking to KK about school, summer plans. And I quote, one thing led to another. And he performed oral sex on her. What? So, like, when you say one thing led to another, you're like, oh, I was out at the bar drinking. One thing led to another. I got home at 2 a.m. You're not like, oh, I was talking to an 11-year-old in her bedroom while I was kidnapping her, and one thing led to another, and I performed oral sex on her. Not the... Yeah, no. No. One thing led to Mm -hmm. another. No. Does not fit there. Nothing led... No. Mm -mm. Yeah. He said he cut off her shirt and skirt with a pair of scissors, and he left the pillowcase on her head. And the police asked, and I don't know why they asked this question. They said, it, was it against her will? What? I don't know if they were just doing it to like shore up the confession because oh. there's literally yeah. no answer to that no. question other than yes. She's 11. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. He said, and I quote, her hands were tied, but her feet weren't. He said it started off against her will, but then she wasn't resisting. So he kept going. Oh, and then Disgusting. he said after he assaulted her, he pleasured himself and ejaculated on her stomach in a disgusting display of power is what he said. 
And then he took sexually explicit photos of her while she was naked. I mean, like disgusting Ew. photos. What a garbage human being. Yeah. yeah. He said Ugh. he said that he was going to use them to blackmail the Pettit family later on. But Steven said that that had to be a lie because you couldn't even tell who it was from the photos. Because like she it was, had the pillowcase over her head. And it was mm-hmm. just like, it was just like genitals and like disgusting. So they were photos. just Ugh. for him. Like as they like were a just small remembrance gross. of the evening. Disgusting. Yeah. And he was adamant that he did not rape her, rape her. He was adamant that it was only oral sex, but Ew. a rectal swab that was taken from inside of her had his DNA on it. Ugh. So um, they do not believe that he did not rape her. Awful. So he said after that, he let her shower and change because he had ejaculated on her stomach. Mm-hmm. And then he oh. let her get dressed while he waited in the hallway because he, he wanted to give what? her privacy and then he said he went back in and he tied her feet but not her hands because she was just being so compliant and then he said he went and he checked on Haley and bill and he said while this was happening steve called him with updates and said it was going well and said that jennifer was aware that things would go badly for her if she didn't comply so around 9 21 a.m there was a 911 call from a bank employee it was the banking center manager mary lyons and she said we have a lady who's in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held oh. at their house the people are in a car outside the bank she's getting fifteen thousand dollars to bring out to them that if the police are told they will kill her children and the husband her name is jennifer pettit mm. so shortly after the call was made Officers were dispatched to the Pettit home, but they were instructed by their superiors to not enter the house. There was a suspicion that Jennifer was being complicit in the cash <gasps> withdrawal because of how calm she was. Are you kidding oh my God. me? So the officers were told not to attempt to speak with Stephen when he arrived at the house, and they were told not to contact anybody at the residence <gasps> via the house. They were told to set up a perimeter and monitor the situation because they said they had no information that any violent activity was happening. Oh, I, I'm furious for them. Because I, I could have gone with it if you said they were told not to go in because they they were told not to go in because they were afraid they would like kill them on site or something, kill the, the right. people yes, on absolutely. site. But to have them go in, like not do anything is... So there was... This was part of um, one of their appeals, but there were um, police calls that were released after the fact. And one of the um, lieutenants said, apparently she came into the bank. She tried to get some money out. One of the accounts was in her husband's name. And she said, well, my kids are at home tied up. So we don't really know if they really are or if she was just trying to get money out at this point. Are you kidding me? It, the lieutenant said she was calm and she didn't appear upset. She walked into the bank. She got the money. She was by herself. The other person was in the car. But like, wouldn't you err on the side of like, okay, let's hold the money. We'll like give them, but we'll watch it. Like, let's just make sure nobody's getting murdered. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you go on that side? This right. woman was such a badass bitch, yeah. right? Like she did everything right. She calmly went into the Ugh. bank to not arise suspicion. She calmly told them like, this is the situation like yeah help me but like do not make a big scene of it yeah and the police response was basically like mm, she seems suspicious well do you think she seems suspicious when her family's tied up at home and i yeah. think i think she was like so compliant and so 
just focused on helping her family. Mm -hmm. I actually think the only reason she told them that this was happening, and this is sort of taking it from part of Stephen's discussion on a podcast. So again, take it with a grain of salt. But he said that she had come out and she said, you know, like I did everything I had to do. Like they didn't want to give it to me because I didn't have it all in my account and they weren't going to give it to me. And I said, listen, I need this money. Mm -hmm. They have my family. So like, had they just handed her over the money, I don't even know that she would have told them what was going Mm -hmm. on. Like I think I my understanding is that she only told them because she oh, had to to get oh. the money and that's why they said you know part of the money was in her husband's account so we're not sure if they're just trying to get it so yeah the the cops and they actually called over the the broadcast they said three suspects one is a female supposedly in the upstairs bedroom possibly dead with the other two and at that point too they also um they called they said i want to set up a perimeter um as soon as everyone is geared up you know, we're going to we're going to end up having to make contact. A hostage negotiator was paged and they were like, nope, we don't need you. We're good. We're good. OK, oh. we're good right now. A lot of missed opportunity here. Yeah, we're good. So and again, the timeline, it ended up getting released later on with the police. But apparently uh, Jennifer and Stephen probably could have been intercepted on the way back to the house. So. They probably could have saved the mother. Yeah, because when the call came in, there was someone in that area. So they probably could have intercepted the car. And when it initially happened, the police said we were getting there just as they were coming out of the house. And then the timeline showed that that was not true. And Mm. Steven said that he actually saw the cop when they were pulling up and walking into the house. But again, take that with a grain of salt because he's full of shit. Um, So Steven and Jen came back with the money in the envelopes. you know, again, this is where the stories diverge. So I'm I'm actually just going to go with Stevens because I think it's true. I think that's the more mm-hmm. likely scenario. So Steven gets back and he says, we're good. We've got the money. And Josh says, we've got a problem. Uh, we have to kill them because I left DNA with one of the kids. Oh, my so. bad. Yep. He says, so um, I'm going to have to take care of the kids and you are going to have to square it up and take care of Jennifer. Uh-huh yeah so again they're they're diverse like joshua said i never agreed to kill anybody like what are you talking about we've got the money like bullshit no you didn't you're an asshole no that's a lie 100 Mm percent so hayes says that he you know looked outside he saw the cops Mm. and he felt betrayed and said he just like basically blacked out went into a rage pulled down jennifer's pettit's pants and raped her just like rage he said it was not for sexual pleasure he said he just okay rage went, raping. went into a fit of rage and raped her and yes, strang- one does <laughs> and strangled her yes. um and then so that was happening joshua hears a noise and he says dr pettit escaped so just to go back while jennifer is being raped by steven dr pettit is in the basement and he was doing what he could to stay alive he was in and out of consciousness he kept trying to stand up to keep the blood flowing he basically would pass out from the blood loss like he's been bleeding for like seven hours yes he was not doing good he said he could hear a thumping coming from upstairs and he thought it was the men ransacking the house and then he heard a moan and again at that time it was his wife being raped Mm, and and strangled and he said that he yelled out hey and one of the men said don't worry it will all be over soon 
So he said at that point he knew it was going to end badly. He said he knew he couldn't take the two men based on his current state. So he was rubbing his wrist ties, the, the zip ties together and the plastic broke. His ankles were still zip tied. Um, but he hopped and rolled. He tripped out of the basement. Um, he rolled to his neighbor's house and was pounding on the garage door. Oh my gosh. He was in such bad shape. His neighbor of 18 years said, can I help you, sir? Oh my God. He did not know who he was at all. Nope. He had to say, it's me. It's Bill. Like call, call 911 quick, quick, quick. Like he didn't realize he had seen people in the bushes. He said Mm -hmm. when he was like rolling out, but he didn't realize like the cops were there. I was just going to ask, like, did the cops see him coming out? And like, what did they think of it? Apparently the cops, what I heard was that the cops saw him coming out and did nothing. They were like so focused on the house. And then I think they thought that he might've been like a perpetrator. So they like, then they ran up to him and they were like, what's going on? And he said, the girls, the girls are in the house. Well, I think it's really easy to be harsh on, on like how they handled this because a it's retrospect. We're looking and we have all the information. We know exactly what's happening. B this is Cheshire, Connecticut. I know these are not things where these heinous crimes happen all the time and they're prepared for this and like kind of know what to expect. Like no, they've got nothing for, um, for experience. No, they don't, they don't have training for this. So Joshua said, Bill escaped. He escaped. So he's freaking out. And he said at that time he turned and saw that Jennifer was dead on the living room floor with her pants around her ankles. He said he knew he knew she was dead because he was an EMT. And he said he could see that her face was blue and purple. So I'm sure it took a real scientist to figure yep, that out yeah. at that mm-hmm. point. So they realized Bill escaped and they both freak out. Again, their stories diverge. Joshua's adamant that nobody was supposed to die, that Stephen just started running around and pouring gasoline around the house, said he poured it upstairs in the hallway. And Joshua went upstairs to shut the girls' bedroom doors because he wanted to buy them time because he said you couldn't seriously be wanting to burn these girls alive. And the officer said, well, did you ever think about untying them? Yeah, like, no what about kk kk what? couldn't he use a head start there no, like it, it didn't cross his mind he uh, said it didn't cross mm. his mind he just wanted to shut the doors to buy them more time mm. uh reason why this story is bullshit so again he said he only poured it in the hallway closed the doors and they went downstairs i believe steven's version which is that um joshua poured the gasoline upstairs steven poured it downstairs mm-hmm. Both Haley and Michaela had gasoline poured on them while they were alive. That's one of my worst nightmares. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So they poured all the gasoline in the house. Both men pointed the finger at each other as to who lit the match. Um, Most likely scenario is that Joshua lit the match, flicked it in the kitchen. Whole house went up in flames, up in flames because the gasoline. I'm shocked they didn't burn themselves, actually. Yeah. Well, and I, one of them said that they thought it was going to be one of those like movie scenarios where because of the gasoline, like the windows blow out. So they just like wanted to get out of there. Um, so the house went up in flames. Both Michaela and Haley were alive when the fire was lit. Michaela died of smoke inhalation tied to her bed. Um, and Haley had been found at the top landing of the stairway. She was alive and walking while the fire was lit. Um, she had third and fourth degree burns to her feet and her front was more burnt than her back. So she was like facing the fire. 
And they said that she probably had untied herself. She'd gotten free and she was trying to save Michaela when oh. she was over <laughs> overcome by smoke. I'm going to cry. Whew. Uh, Jennifer was so badly burned. She had to be ID'd by dental records. Oh, so at 956, both of the guys run out. They get into the Pettit's car. It's like a Chrysler SUV. Joshua gets in the driver's seat. Hayes gets in the passenger seat. Uh, Joshua started to reverse and heard sirens, turns around, sees there's an unmarked car behind him blocking the driveway, which he hit. And then he said he was panic stricken and basically forgot how to drive. He said he was like stuck in the bushes, forgot how to drive. Um, He said Hayes put it in drive for him, told him to gas it. And they ended up hitting cruisers that were barricading the road, airbags deployed, and both men were instructed out of the car by the police department. And I will say one thing that the Cheshire Police Department did that I thought was really smart is they set up the cars in the street in like a V pattern facing Mm -hmm. the house so that when they hit the cars, they sort of just like ran into each other. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. that so that it passed them. Yeah. So that it didn't just push the car out of the way where they could continue to go. So that was like a really smart way to to set up the cars. Seven hours. So it was from 3 a.m. until 10 in the morning. And again, Dr. Bill Pettit was the only survivor. Now, here's the crazy part. So th- I remember, you know, just being from Connecticut, people would talk about like, how as a father could you leave the house and leave your family in the house? Like, how could you save yourself? Like, I would have done this. I would have gone up. I would have saved mm-hmm. them. So Bill was in the hospital after this. The average adult has nine to 12 pints of blood. You die around 50 to 75% blood loss. And the doctors estimated that Bill had lost seven pints of blood well, that night. So it is a literal miracle that, that he, was he alive. is alive. Wow. So for people saying, like, how could he not do this? Like, he was barely conscious. Like, it, it is a miracle that he is alive. Because he was out of the house before the fire. He was, yes. Right. He was, so what did you expect him to go back in in his... Well, they were just saying, know, like, like... Go not, fight them. Like, don't leave the house. Yes, that saying, he should have gone please. upstairs. He was in no shape. No. I mean, like... And again, <sighs> with the beating that he took to his head, he was in no shape. But hearing that about the blood loss... and Because he, he was on yeah. blood thinners. So yeah, he yeah, was yeah. just, like, profusely bleeding. So, like, it's a miracle he wow. didn't die. And they... the uh, Jennifer's parents said they went to see him in the hospital. And all he kept doing was apologizing for oh. not saving Jennifer oh. and the kids. Yeah, I'm sure that, uh, like, he regrets it even though he has no reason to i'm sure he feels that way so he doesn't need people like survivor's guilt right Right. totally right and they just kept saying like stop it it's not your fault like please we're Mm -hmm. we're just so happy that that you are alive Mm -hmm. um so again we touched base briefly you know there was a lot of scrutiny about cheshire police department and i'm really like a devil's advocate for this Mm -hmm. so like they're really there's no precedent for this in this town like this this town was not prepared to handle that level Mm -hmm. of crime no but it does seem like things maybe should have gone differently Mm. but you know people when they were asked they said you know had i known that was going on in the house so the the cheshire pd were set up outside the house Mm -hmm. while jennifer was raped and strangled and while the girls were lit on fire so that's why they were like, you were there mm-hmm. and you didn't do anything. They were like, you didn't, you didn't have a hostage negotiator. You didn't mm-hmm. knock on the door. You didn't peek in the windows. They didn't have shades. They were mm-hmm. like, you could have looked in mm-hmm. the windows to see what was going on. They would have seen 
Stephen raping Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Like they would have known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they said there was no indication that, you know, that there was any violence happening. And like, like I read before, you know, they thought maybe she was complicit. You know, they were dealing with this like potential hostage situation that they didn't understand the full extent of. Again, hindsight is yeah. completely 2020. I still feel like something like that you should probably take more seriously and err on the side of caution yeah so here's what gets me so again like i said devil's advocate i i no none of us can put ourselves in that position as a police officer they don't they didn't know what they were going into they didn't know what was happening Mm -hmm. inside michael malone the town manager said and this is a quote I just can't say enough good things about how proud I am of the extraordinary effort of our police officers and our firefighters. They're extremely well-trained. They're a great group of professionals. And I think today exemplified the finest of what the police and fire were all about in this community. And I can't thank them enough because without their great work, this could have been a far worse tragedy. We were very, very fortunate. Now, let me just ask you this. One person survived with no help at all from the police or fire. He literally just crawled his way out of the house without any of their assistance. How could it have been a worse tragedy? Uh, That's what I was wondering. How, How does it get worse? He dies too? Okay. Well, he basically wishes he would have died that day with his family, I'm sure. Yeah. So Right. So like like I said, devil's advocate, uh, don't go say things like that. No. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot defend you when you say do better things like instead of saying yeah. that. It could have <laughs> it could have been a far worse tragedy. No. <sighs> no, bro. No, bro. it was it was pretty bad. Bruh. Bruh. <laughs> Bruh. Don't do that. <laughs> so and after this happened too, there was a lot of scrutiny on the parole board. Basically, like nobody was getting let out on parole after this happened because they were like look what happened last time yeah they were like halt the brakes and basically they were like there were no flags there were no red flags that these two men would do what they did so i will i will give them that because yes they were super creepy and watching people sleep and all that but none of it had been to that extent like you really think they're gonna harmed anyone before yeah and right yeah right because they had never murdered anyone right like this was their only so i'll give them that like i mean burglary i don't like the word is not at all on the same plane as this right and i mean well typically you do have like an escalation of behavior so if you're really again hindsight's 2020 if you're studying joshua's you know history you might see like you know he's going into these houses he's watching people sleep like something sketch it's like he wanted someone to wake up like why would you be going in at night when people are home unless you're looking for a confrontation at some Mm -hmm. point but again like i will give him that like even if they had that sentencing transcript, they might have still let him go. Like yep. so, everybody just wanted to point mm-hmm. fingers. And, of course. And again, yeah. like I don't blame the Cheshire PD, but don't come out and say you did the best the job best ever job because, ever. like, yeah. it went super as, tone deaf. It went yeah. almost as bad as it could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you yeah. caught them, and and Jennifer's sister, you know, she said, oh, oh, they told me they caught them, and she was like, who cares? My family's dead. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, oh, oh yeah, right. You get to know what happened, but that's that's the only closure you get right so both of the men um were charged with a lot of a lot of charges Mm -hmm. um they each had at least six capital felonies i believe um i believe hayes had 16 charges and commissar jesky had 17 charges now both men offered to plead guilty in exchange for life without the possibility of parole and the state rejected the offer and made them go to trial because in Connecticut, you cannot impose the death penalty without a trial. 
Okay. That's what I was just going to ask. Cause I was going to say, it doesn't seem like a win to be in life in, in prison for life without parole, but I guess compared to the death penalty it is for them. Which one of the, one of the, I think it was on the HBO documentary. I think it was, um, Mike Lawler who said anybody that told Dr. Pettit that these two were going to be put to death lied to him Mm. because Connecticut has not really, we had the death penalty. Mm. It's abolished now, but we had it. And I think like the only person we'd put to death in like 30 years was Michael Ross. And it was because he waived his appeals and like basically begged Mm. us to put him to death. So they were like, when they stopped the death penalty, I do. I thought you might, let me get to that. Okay. Yep. So I have that in here because this case impacted the abolition of the death penalty. Interesting. Mm hmm. So again, both men said, you know, we won't put everybody through the, like the, the state's evidence mm-hmm. is overwhelming. We will, we waive the trials. We'll plead guilty, but we want life without parole. And the state said, no. So Hayes began his trial on September 13th, 2010. Um, he tried to commit suicide during jury selection in January. Um, so there were a lot of delays going on with his mental health issues. There was like a competency hearing in there. Mm. He also, his lawyers made claims that, um, his cell was inhumane. So the judge went out and inspected it. And can we just appreciate the irony of, uh, of the state spending, um, all of its time and yeah. resources trying to keep a man they're trying to put to death from committing suicide in prison? Yeah. Well, just let him do it. officially known they were going to put him to death at that point. Yeah, but they were trying. Yeah. They, they were trying, they were trying to get the death penalty. So can we just appreciate the Ugh. irony of that? Um, so he was represented by the chief public defender, Tom Ullman, who uh, was actually one of my professors in law school. And he was actually against the death penalty, he said, not necessarily for moral reasons, but because it cost the state so much more money than putting people to jail for life. He said that he basically would get a blank check. He said if he had to fly to Indiana to talk to the guy's sister to get his, you know, life history to come up with mitigating factors, he would do so. Mm. So, you know, he said that he it it just cost the state Mm. so much money. He actually estimated that their trials with appeals cost the state uh six to eight million dollars each wow each 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 both men cost the state six million to eight million for the trials and appeals wow um so hayes's trial lasted over two weeks uh on october 5th 2010 the jury convicted him of 16 of the 17 crimes for which he was charged including all six capital offenses he was found not guilty on the arson charge And the jury actually asked um, during deliberations, they sent out a note. I think it said something like, does the pouring of gasoline count for arson or something like that? Mm. So they were considering Mm. they didn't believe that he lit the match Mm. and that's why he was acquitted. So they think that Josh lit the match. So the penalty phase for Stephen Hayes began began on October 17th, 2010. uh, And the jury sentenced him to death on November 8th, 2010, the fourth day of deliberations. And Stephen Hayes smiled when they sentenced him to death. He was happy with the verdict and got what he wanted. Because remember, he's suicidal. He said said that he didn't know the girls were alive when the fire was lit. And when he found out after the fact that they were still alive, that's when he started his suicide mission. So he assumed that Joshua killed the girls. Yeah. Like he took care of them. Yes. So uh, there's varying stories even between Stephen from when he like confessed what he Mm. told his um, like during a psych eval, like what he told this podcast I listened to. But he in in the podcast he said that when he got back from the bank 
Joshua said, kids are dead. Bill's dead. You got to take care of Jennifer. Oh, but I don't like, again, there's so many versions and they're so full of shit. Like, I don't know how it went down, but so I don't, I, I agree though, that Joshua was the ringleader and that Steven got dragged into something that he probably wouldn't have done. I mean, he was like a, he He just wanted money. Yeah. He robbed cars. I mean, like during the day, like Joshua, it seems to me like he was really the mastermind behind this. So Joshua's trial began um about a year later september 19th 2011 he was charged with three counts of murder four counts of kidnapping and burglary arson and assault trial lasted a little over three weeks and october 13th 2011 a jury found him guilty on all 17 charges including six capital felony charges so a jury believed that he lit the match in his Mm -hmm. trial and not in Hayes. um the sentencing phase of Komisar Jeffsky's trial began on October 25th, 2011. It lasted about six weeks. And on the fifth day of deliberation, the jury sentenced him to death. Um, on April 12th, 2021, the Supreme Court rejected his appeal and affirmed his convictions. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear his appeal. Now, Hayes had appealed as well. There's automatic appeals, but he actually dropped it after the death penalty was abolished and he was resentenced. Mm. So going into the death penalty, sorry, (laughs) in 2009, so two years after this happened, the Connecticut legislature passed a bill to abolish the death penalty and Governor Rell vetoed it, citing the Cheshire crimes. And she quoted a passage Mm. from Dr. Pettit in her veto letter. Um, in 2012, Connecticut abolished the death penalty and to get the votes needed to pass the repeal and allay some of the concerns from the fallout with the Cheshire killings because Bill Pettit was like a, a monster advocate. I mean, like he was fully involved in all of this. Um, the legislature abolished the death penalty going forward in 2012. So that would mean that the 11 inmates on death row would still be subject to capital punishment by lethal injection on August 25th, 2015, the Connecticut Supreme Court in the case of State versus Santiago said that the abolition of the death penalty was retroactive and applied to those already on death row. So basically they said, you can't do what you did. If it's morally wrong, it's morally yeah, wrong. Yeah. You can't yep. you can't kill the people that are already tagged. Yep. Um, and that decision was affirmed by the Connecticut Supreme Court in the decision of State versus Peeler. And then after the death penalty was abolished, on July 23rd, 2017, Komisar Jeffsky was sentenced to six life terms plus 140 years. And Hayes was sentenced to six life terms and 106 years. And that was 10 years to the day of the event. July 23rd, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was. That was an crazy. excellent observation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is great. Numbers. Um, so I forgot to mention the two the two of these guys just pointed fingers at each mm-hmm. other throughout their entire trial so obviously they knew that they were guilty and they were going to be found guilty but um their their attorneys at least you know hayes wanted to die but his public defender was still trying to put on a case against the death penalty yep. and komisar Jevsky had special public defenders because they had a conflict in the public mm-hmm. defender's office because they were representing Com- uh yep. hayes so both of them were trying to point fingers. So Hayes tried to introduce in his trial um, journal entries that were written by Komisar Jeffsky. He was writing letters and was keeping a journal. And I guess he was sending the letters to this author that wrote a book. And, you know, we talked about how he goes into people's houses and listens mm-hmm. to them breathe. 
the stuff that he wrote is is so disturbing and these are quotes they're not they're not in any order necessarily they're just from his journals mm-hmm. that he wrote he said a thief in the night i have come to steal not jewels and money but your personal safety privacy and security i violate your inner asylum of intimacy and i piss on your optical illusion of peace and innocence i feast on your animosity the pettit family passed through their fear and into the calm waters of abject terror like mesmerized rabbits cornered by a spring predator to see that fear, that emotional pain I feel every day manifested on another's face validates that this pain in me is real. Shockwaves of myself's hopelessness reverberates its bitterness through my crooked soul at the realization that I cross life's bridge of depravity. The awakening of my shadow repressed within reaching its zenith that morning with rapturous control of Michaela. Her age was insignificant. Wow. Yeah, he also wrote, um, month upon month, my private horror show went unnoticed at an impressionable age of childhood, innocence six years young. When other children were experiencing the world's magic and life's simple games, I was baptized in humanity's inhumanity. So I don't like him. No. I He's obviously a terrible human being and did terrible things. And it's like we said earlier, what a shame, because that's... I can't even say this, but beautifully written. I know. Like, like disturbingly beautifully so written. if it were anything, like, if he didn't do what he did and it wasn't on the topics that it is. Right. Unbelievable. Like, wow. I agree with you. <laughs> and this awful. is this is going back to why I think he did it. Like, he was saying, I was faced with shocking realization that in some respects, I enjoyed it. Um, he said that Haley Pettit was a fighter and that she tried to break free and help her family. Um, he called Pettit a coward for not doing more for his wife and daughters. He said, had Mr. Pettit fought back in the very beginning, I would have been forced to retreat. Yeah, right. Yeah. He said his passive disposition to the welfare of his family only confused and agitated the anger in me. No, I think that's continued just I think he's just trying to torture him. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he, um... He actually said to him, too, that he gave, he said that he gave uh, Dr. Pettit multiple times to face his, to, to save his family and that he was a coward and he ran when his life was in, in jeopardy. Awful. And I just think, again, with the amount of blood loss, yeah. I just think that's what, absolutely yeah, What chance did you bullshit. give him? Like, yeah. you woke him up with a baseball bat. Yeah. Right. Uh, Josh said, I am what I am and I make no excuses. I'm a criminal with a criminal's mind and my anticipated death sentence will be a sentence of mercy. So, yeah. So Hayes was trying to, to, you know, put this in the light where, you know, Komisarjevsky was the criminal mastermind Mm -hmm. behind this. And now in uh, Komisarjevsky's trial, they had taken letters from Hayes where he apparently admitted to the murder of 17 other people um hayes did yeah they he wrote a letter well hang on hang on hang on he wrote a letter and it said you know he would be he'd be responsible for 17 unsolved murders in new england between 1980s and 2007 and he was you know detailing in these letters his first kill i was driving home from a bar and i noticed this girl hitchhiking she'd be the perfect victim 
Uh, it said the 17 kill trophies meant the most to me. Each trophy was a one of a kind and completely specific to each victim, which they were sneakers, according to this letter. Oh, the sneakers. It said, I've searched my whole life for someone who could embrace and had the capacity for evil as I possess. I thought I finally found it in Josh, but events show Josh, while he had the proper evil intent, lacked in the most serious aspects, commitment and control. So it's like, holy shit, this guy murdered 17 other people. And, yeah. and you know, he's saying that he was the evil one or whatever. No. Well, um, yeah, no, he completely admitted to lying and fabricating yeah. that entire story because he said that um, he figured that the police would come in and want to investigate all these murders that he was saying happened. Oh, so he would talk to them. He would give them information on these made up crimes right. in exchange for food. He was going to request oysters because he's highly allergic to oysters. So they'd bring him oysters. He would eat them and then they would find him dead in his cell the next day. I'm not going to lie. That's decently smart. It's a decent plan. That's like kind of, it, you know, <laughs> it seems like it I, didn't work. What do you have to lose? It, it was a good plan. Yeah. If you like oysters, a good last meal. I yeah. just yeah. So both of the guys are are serving. They're serving their sentences out in a uh, prison prisons in Pennsylvania, actually. So in the aftermath of this, so the Pettit home was demolished on May thirtieth, two thousand eight, and a memorial garden stand in its stands in its mm. place. Um, Dr. Pettit created the Pettit Family Foundation. Uh, it was created to honor the lives of the three women and support young people's education, particularly women's education in sciences to improve the lives of those affected by chronic illness and to support efforts to protect and help those affected by violence. They said after the home invasion, 25,000 pieces of mail came in and the Pettit family responded to every single one of them, every single one of them. And they said, even if it didn't have a return address, they would look it up and they would find it. And they said that they would get things. They would get like a $5,000 check from like a big business or they would get like crumpled up dollar bills because like that's all somebody had to give to the foundation. So it was like across the board. Um, they've, uh, Bill has started something called Michaela's garden where it's $10 for packets of seeds of flowers that were uprooted from the garden that Michaela helped her dad plant and they've harvested over 300,000 seeds. On August 5th, 2012, Dr. Pettit remarried Christine Pauliff, who's a freelance photographer who had volunteered to do work for the Pettit Family Foundation. Um, And I heard that she is very supportive. You know, she wants Bill to remember his wife and his family. You know, she said, like, it's sort of like a catch-22 for her because, like, she wants him to remember, but she also recognizes, like, had this horrible thing happened, she would never have found the love of of her life. But, you know, she's very supportive of him and talking talking about the family. And they had a son, William Pettit III, on November 23rd, 2013. And in 2016, uh, Dr. Pettit was elected as the state representative for the 22nd district uh he assumed office in 2017 and is currently serving his third term and he said he used to have bad weeks and awful days but he said these days it's mostly unpleasant minutes and hours oh mm. there's something poetic about the fact that they had a son and not yeah. a daughter you know, know. like that there's that just a the memory better. of his yeah yeah e- I, I not that easier but yeah yeah i can't That's- I just can't imagine. I was interning in the victim's advocate's mm-hmm. office when this was going down and when these cases were being tried. And I remember seeing him walking in the hallways. And I just thought, like, how do you even 
talk to him and it's like you know you can't even be like hey how's your day it's like a real shitty my whole family was murdered Mm -hmm. like i i Mm -hmm. can't even i can't even fathom like talking to him as a person so that guys was the horrific cheshire home invasion insidious it was extremely and it was a it was a grave retelling of an insidious murder it was was a grave retelling i will give you that you were very grave it was a grave retelling yeah what a what a way to kick us off on yeah right i know i know so i I apologize for any uh you know disorganization but it was a lot of information and you did a great job thank you thank you good maybe better choice of words next time but you did an awesome job so anyway so that was the first episode Uh, again thank you so much to our three listeners we really appreciate your love and support um and yeah so We just hope that you uh, listen, learn, and stay Stay alive. alive.